Cut, and this is The K-Cut. My name is James. I'm a content creator. I produce and release music under the A-List Boutique Paul. I'm one half of the Prevent to Say podcast. I'm a writer of the Films Fatale writing team. And I, my main interests include no-budget cinema and 70 cinema. I'm Rachel. I also write for Films Fatale. I like international film, the Oscars, uh, Golden Age Hollywood, and lost cinema. Hello, hello. This is Andreas. I love... Uh international cinema i love art house cinema i love a little bit of everything in between i created and am one of the writers of films fatale and welcome back to not just another episode of the k-cut uh this is another episode of our ongoing monthly series the cinematic smorgasbord where the way that it works is quite simple we give each other a film that we've never seen before and we Watch it, and we report our findings in these very episodes. So, the way it's going to work is the first portion of this episode, we're going to report our individual findings. Um, So, what films were we assigned? Did we like them? What films did we assign somebody else? All that good stuff. In the second portion of the episode, we all, all three of us had an assignment for a film that we have never seen before. And that film is O Pagador de Promesas, or The Given Word, uh, should we prefer to say the easier title. And that's going to be covered in the second portion of the episode, so look forward to that. And finally, we will recommend each other new films to cover in the next month. So, this is the May version of the Cinematic Smorgasbord. Let's get right down to it. So who wants to go first? I can go first. Okay, uh, what were you assigned and by whom? Uh, well, Andreas, you assigned me Dario Argento's 1987 film, Opera. Alrighty, so I re- recommended that to you because Suspiria is uh, the more well-known Argento film. And I don't only try to find films that neither of you have seen, but I also occasionally try to do stuff that I feel like might be part of your taste and you like to recommend a lot of very out there stuff james so i tried to f- find something in in my um my palette of, of uh filmographies that might have suited your taste so how did i do oh i thought it was great this was definitely up my alley so in short opera is about uh actually it is about an opera like it takes place at an opera house and um, the main character is a young singer who is the understudy for the show. And the lead actress or a singer ends up in an accident, not being able to perform. So she takes over. And then out of nowhere, a bunch of mysterious murders happen. And she ends up kind of becoming involved in all of it. And it's just kind of like, you know, it's like a whodunit, but also, you know, very much a thriller. And uh, it was, oh, it was, I, I really enjoyed Suspiria. So this was definitely a good one for me to watch after that. And uh, I think the main thing I really liked was how the cinematography and music kept the tension going regardless of what was happening. Like even in like the slower or more, you know, calm moments, it was like you're on the edge of your seat, like what's going to happen next? Yeah, it's uh, it's certainly um, an interesting film. I do know that the, uh, if I'm pronouncing it correctly, the giallo genre of horror, which is like specific Italian horror from like the uh, 60s and 70s or in this case 80s i do know that it's not everyone's preferred cup of tea because it effectively kind of is just a more stylish version of a slasher film so something like like opera kind of is a by the numbers uh literally uh, you know dropping by numbers sort of a slasher film but i do like how argento has this 
mysticism to what he's doing. Now, I really don't care for his stuff after opera, and I don't like everything that he's done in particular, but I feel like this was his, like, final hurrah where he was kind of firing at all cylinders, and, um, yeah, as cheap as it is, it's also incredibly engrossing. I liked how... Like, there's one particular moment where it is just an example of good writing, the whole crows never forget part. Right. And when they actually kind of execute that, I was like, oh, that's that's good storytelling right there. Rachel, did you get a chance to see opera? I did. I thought it was tremendous. It had a lot of symbolism that goes along with Giallo. You know, um, the same sort of dark impulses that the very best of horror has. And what is it with us and adaptations of the Scottish play, honestly? That was completely accidental. Um, I forgot that it had anything to do with it, but you're right. At the very beginning, it's um, it's implied, and this is where uh, good Argento used to used to stem his ideas from. Um, you know, these ideas of actual mythologies or urban legends, and you know, he dabbles in a lot of like Italian horror tropes. But in this case, yeah, there's like a more universal one: the idea that a very specific Shakespearean play, which I won't mention for, for a courtesy of you, Rachel. Um, you know that that type of urban legend. You know this curse surrounding a specific play. If you mention its name, or um, you know trying to reenact it, all of that stuff. Uh, effectively, your your fate is doomed, and you see that right at the beginning of this thing. And um, I like that he toys around with that idea a little bit before it gets into something a little bit more palatable and plausible when it comes to like the mind of a serial killer. So. Yeah, very interesting stuff. Yeah, I, de- I definitely recommend it to anybody who's into those kind of movies. Because, uh, yeah, I was just, like, watching the whole time. I also liked how, because, um, like, the framework and the pacing and, like, how the ending happens is almost, it's very, you can see the Hitchcock influence without him trying to blatantly rip off Hitchcock. It's like how, it's almost like how Brian De Palma does it. Like, he he's able to be a successor without, you know, being a copycat. And I feel like this is why opera is perhaps the last... I think it's the last Argento film uh, of like his classic oeuvre or his classic uh, canon that I feel like he completely lost the way when it came to thresholds and how far he should go when it comes to... He, let's be honest, he, his films have never been subtle, but he definitely knew how much salt and pepper to put on this, on this dish before he kind of just... I don't know. He, he, he overdoes too much now, but... You know, to your point, this does very, this does feel very Hitchcockian at times without screaming, look at me, I'm a film Hitchcock didn't make, but he should have, you know? Well, yeah, overall, thumbs up for me. Yeah, I enjoyed it. Now, I th- think this is a bit of a silly question, but how would this compare to his film Suspiria? I, I feel like Suspiria is leagues ahead, but just in case you feel differently. Yeah, it uses some of the same themes, but it's sharper. Oh, really? Yeah, I, I mean, I consider it a more tightly made film. Yeah, it does seem like it's a bit more focused. I, I think because it's the, I think because of the like kind of the story is a little bit more subtle than Suspiria. Because Su- Suspiria kind of goes into like supernatural territory, and it's like you know, this one's kind of a bit more grounded. I think it's, a, I think this one's a bit easier to digest than Suspiria. Maybe that's why I prefer Suspiria because I. I I'm kind of a sadist when it comes to what I put myself through. So, oh yeah, I mean, um, I prefer Suspiria, but like opera is a really, it's kind of good counterbalance. Fantastic. Well, um, that's what you watched. Uh, what did you recommend, Rachel? 
No. So I chose for her one of my all-time favorite ridiculous comedies, Pootie Tang, which is a black exploitation parody film written and directed by Louis C.K. before he became like super famous. Yeah, so this was an interesting watch. Definitely, if you're familiar with black exploitation at all, a lot of the familiar tropes will show up, so that was fun. And this movie was not very successful when it came out. It was really panned by a lot of people. Like, Roger Ebert's review just seems more confused than anything. But I can see why it got a cult following after, because it had so many running gags, so many distinctive things about it. It had an incredible cast, like every comedian you could possibly think of. And just, I can I can see why it took so long to take off, but then did. Um, I thought Wanda Sykes was really good as this kind of Greek chorus character, and like, it was just a really cool story. I think uh, it's, it's about this... Um, musician slash general celebrity named Pootie Tang who had a weird childhood and he speaks in a way I was really fascinated with the way they wrote how he speaks because oh the tanguage <laughs> yeah you never you never know what he's saying but you know exactly what he's saying at the same time and like whoever wrote that did a really good job um and then there's this like corporate guy who is going after him because he makes these PSAs that support kids and cut into this dude's profits. And the story just goes from there. There's a lot of weird asides. And it, like, it's not a brilliantly done movie. A lot of plots get dropped. It's pretty random. But yeah, I really enjoyed the sort of atmosphere that it had. And I gotta say, James, every movie you recommend to me gives me serious early 2000s flashbacks, because, like, <laughs> the celebrities, awesome. the female celebrities in that movie all dressed like I did in middle school. That's amazing. Yeah, it's unfortunate, because this was actually a victim of studio meddling. So, mm. to explain why what happened and why, because the film itself, like, the actual film is only really 71 minutes, and then, like, it's like bookended with like a bunch of outtakes and like extended credits stuff. But all along while he was making it, because when it was originally made, it was supposed to be on, I think, Paramount Classics. So they're kind of like offshoot, like quote unquote indie division. And then it got bumped up to like a main Paramount release. And then Louis C.K. actually ended up getting fired during editing because they didn't like what was going on because his vision was completely different, but at the end of the day, they wanted like a black Austin Powers type of movie. Oh, oh. no. Like, this one was way better than that. <laughs> yeah. And that's why, like, Roger Ebert even says, like, it's not even a finished movie because it really isn't. Yeah. It it just, you know, the studio kind of ripped it apart and, you know, because it, it was supposed to take on kind of like a completely different direction. But, and that's why, you know, but people still love it anyway. And, you know, because there's so many great moments in it, especially for being as ridiculous as it is, but you can tell that there there was a lot of thought like like the whole language thing and it's funny because Louis C.K. said that that came about because he used to just speak gibberish as a kid and so he thought he'd kind of throw that in so when he's saying all these weird things it's you know and Lance Crowther does an impeccable job at playing this character he does like this is an incredible cast I could not believe how many people they found for this movie yeah, and it's funny because um, I don't know if it was one of the producers on the movie, but somebody close to the movie actually dug up a VHS of an earlier cut of the movie. Mm-hmm. And I'm kind of curious to see if like they'll ever put that out because it's a. It, it, I'm assuming it's before like Paramount took over and was like you know did their own thing. But yeah, it's just one of those things. It's like you know I always wonder like what would have happened if his like original vision came out because yeah, there's just so many moments and um, it's kind of funny because it's a character that stemmed from the Chris Rock show. Right, and he was an executive producer as well as being in it. Yeah, because I think Lance Carter was also one of the main writers at the time of the show. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, and Rock plays like three or four characters. Yes, he does. And it's he plays like a radio DJ. He plays one of his like crew, and then he also plays Pootie Tang's dad, Daddy Tang, with that crazy belt. Oh yeah, yeah. It's just one of those like relics from the early two thousands. Because like I'm, it, it reminds me how unhinged like those comedy movies were in the early 2000s like it makes you think of like i like it's hard to believe dude where's my car was ever actually made oh yeah there were so many weird comedies that came out of that time and you're right there was a certain chaos to them that we don't have anymore yeah andres did you get around to pootie tang i i wish it sounds like it was an absolute riot i've been uh, bogged down with the uh, tail end of my miniseries research but i'm not gonna lie i feel much more enticed than i thought i might have been uh, I sounds like I'm missing out on something actually extraordinarily bizarre. Yeah, I'd say definitely watch it. I, I absolutely will, and uh, you listeners at home, uh, take note of that as well. I it sounds like it sounds like a must see if you just want something bonkers. Well, Andreas, was your movie bonkers? Quite the opposite, actually. Uh, Trances, which is directed by Ahmed El Maoni, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, is a documentary film. It's actually one that has gained a lot of traction after Martin Scorsese uh, accessioned it in his uh, in his uh, World Cinema Foundation uh, preservation project, and it was uh, new life was breathed into it at the Cannes Film Festival when it was re-released, and it has since been. Um, it has since been given yet another second breath in the Criterion Collection. And what it really is, is a humble hour and a half documentary music film about this about this group. Um, oh my goodness. Sorry, I'm trying to... What are they? I'm probably oh. pronouncing it wrong, but it's Nasal Gawine. Yes, uh, mm-hmm. thank you. I was, I was trying to figure out how to say that. Um, Nasel Gawine is, uh, so the film, it, it, it's inter, it's intercut with a lot of like interview and actual, uh, like other forms of like com- commentative footage, but it starts off a while just focusing on their actual performance. And even that alone, if that's all that it was, if, even in that alone, I mean, it's appropriately called trances because I was transfixed. I, I was, like, really uh, hypnotized by this whole thing. It's sublime yet commanding at the same time. And then when it cuts to each individual band member and what they have to say about the music that they're, that they're creating and it, it's juxtaposed with seeing them on stage channeling everything that they're facing politically, domestically, personally into their music... Um, it's not too vocal, but just enough that it gets the point across. It's, it's something else for a few, for a music film. Yeah. And their music combines so many different elements of like traditional music and theater and poetry and even mysticism. And it was very political. Um, Martin Scorsese used their music for last, I think it was last temptation of Christ. That would make sense because there's a lot going on in that soundtrack and in the film in general. But, um, and I, I could only imagine since this film came out in '81, and it was he who tried to bring this film back into our, into like you know cinematic conscience. Um, perhaps he saw this back in the early '80s and said, "I've got to have a little bit of this in my one of my upcoming projects." Yeah, um, and it was one of the first in his uh, world cinema project, so like clearly it left an impression. Yeah, and 
what I love about it, and this is perhaps the uh, the more lukewarm reception that it's received from the from the public. But uh, I mean, I'm gonna have to disagree with that. What I love about it is that it isn't begging to be like put on full blast, and you have to give your undivided attention. No, it like I genuinely felt like I was being whisked away at times. Yeah, and it uses so many great filmic elements too, like the cinematography, and and it's a good movie on top of being a good uh, music concert film i'm happy you brought up the the uh, filmmaking as well because i feel like there needs to be a shout out to the actual editing of this film as well where it allows the longer passages to sink in but when it needs to be dynamic it kind of just goes for it you know matching the percussion that's going on um it was clearly made by somebody who loves like a, a crew of people who love music and they perhaps love the music that they were hearing because it's it's it nurtures their subject so much Mm -hmm. uh, one thing I liked was that it brought in so many people like in, in they have lots of footage of them like driving around Morocco and as part of their tour. And it showed so many people in the community making music too, like little kids or old people and, and just sort of contextualized them within that. And that was really interesting. Yeah, it's as if they're saying this is the music that that surrounds us. And we're, we're giving this platform that we can share it, but we want to give some some flowers where they're due. And that's from, you know, their surroundings, the, the people that they grew up with. Mm -hmm. So I ranked this number one on my film's fatale list, not just the first time, but also the second time. Um, and it, it was really hard to like uh, rank all those films, but that one just stuck with me for some reason. I feel like there are some on your um, World of Movies project. Uh, for the listeners at home, that's uh, the list that Rachel is referring to, and you should definitely check that out, the World of Movies, where it's a weekly analysis of films from different countries and even one in outer space, one in Antarctica. Check it out. Um, I feel like there are ones like The the Baker's Wife or Only Meat that I would like absolutely place above this, but uh, I, I can easily see why anybody would rank this highly, especially when it comes to observing world cinema particularly in locations of the world that are underrepresented by you know like mainstream publications or you know our, our consciousness of cinema mm -hmm. yeah and um what's interesting is the top two movies on that list trances and the meets for me came from uh scorsese's cinema project so clearly he's onto something there you go. There's a reason why people love getting, I think it's like a box set from, from Criterion, and now they're like individually releasing them one by one, I think. I think Trances was one of the first ones. Mm -hmm. um, there's a reason why. And he also did, if I'm not mistaken, I Am Cuba, which is also a must-see. Um, yeah, I mean, Scorsese is a film preservationist through and through, and he absolutely knows. He knows his stuff, and he's protected a lot of golden pieces of cinema. He is a treasure. He is a treasure. James, did you get a chance to watch this? I did get a chance to watch it. I thought it was really good. I think it reaffirms the thing that I like to say when it comes to st projects like this is like it was really great in the concert film aspects, but also I liked the kind of slice of life approach to the non-musical shots. It was, you know, it, it wasn't like designed to be a comprehensive history of the band. It was kind of like, who are they now and what have they been trying to accomplish since they've been a band? Yeah, literally, while you're looking at them on stage, this is who they are in that moment. You're absolutely right. Yeah, and great, great concert footage. Mm -hmm. And it's a band I would never have heard of without this film. So, 
Right? And it, I mean, it's certainly like a style of music from a part of the world that I just don't know. And I consider myself somebody pretty well versed with music, completely under, uneducated when it comes to this. So, I mean, and genuinely, I thought that the music was actually quite enticing. And it's stuff that I would, I don't know about you guys, but I feel like I would actually check it out in full after this. Seriously. Oh, yeah. And for that matter, you could uh, you could turn off the visuals and just listen to it. Yeah. I, I could absolutely just get lost if this was just a concert film through and through. So um, to wrap up, our, one of our most eclectic smorgasbord collections we've ever had. You know, we have this music documentary. We have uh, an Italian slasher film. We have an homage to exploitation films from Louis C.K. We also have a Palme d'Or winner for all the way from Brazil. And that is... Um, El Pagador de Promesas, if I pronounce that correctly. And of course, we can call it the given word, if that'll make it easier. This is a film... Never. <laughs> we might as well just go with what it's called, right? This is a film by Anselmo Duarte, and it is actually one of the earliest official Palme d'Or winners back in 1962. So that's the reason why I was able to pick the uh, collective pick this week. I went with that one because... I've started really deep diving into my Palm Door winners that I haven't seen yet, and I figured this would have helped. But I also wanted to pick one that really was off everybody's radar, but sounded like it was quite deserving of the win. So, what did we all think? It's Neo-Realist Jesus. Yeah, I... Two films came to mind when... I was watching this. I was thinking of Andrei Rublev by Tarkovsky, and I was also thinking of Ohazar Balthazar by Bresson. I felt like it was like an amalgamation of these two worlds. One starkly real religious film mixed with the pain and agony of um, you know society and how what it bestows on individuals and a society as a whole. I felt like this was like the best of both those worlds smushed into a film. Yeah, it really combined these grand ideals well with these really gritty details, you're right. Um, I found there was a certain grotesqueness to it. The, it was sort of over the top over the top in a way that really suited it. Yeah, like I feel like, uh, I mean, that's a, that's an excellent point. I feel like it reminds me of something like, uh, like a Fassbinder film or like a Herzog film where there's like a certain like rawness, visceral nature. It actually reminds me a little bit of like what happens in uh, Robert Eiger's latest film, The Northman, where it's... It's got a, a purposefully ugly side, and it doesn't want to shy away from that. And if anything, it makes it a much more raw, organic experience that doesn't feel like it's been polished. And I love that. And yet there's also a bit of lightheartedness to it in some ways. Like, I mean, in the it, there's parts that are genuinely funny and like the gossiping town and all of this. And it reminded me a bit of Pagnol's Provençal films, like the Baker's Wife and stuff like that. So there were these strange elements that weren't totally serious do you think that this is um duarte's answer to french or italian neorealism in ways perhaps now uh do you know if, his, if this palm door win was expected or was it kind of an upset or do you just not know that i honestly don't know i feel like it was maybe expected because it actually did go on to be nominated for best foreign language film now known as best international feature film at the academy awards um and it won a few other minor prizes at other uh, film festivals. But um, I would say that perhaps it's expected. But it's tough to say because it's, again, 
outside of this and me having looked up the fact that it was a Palme d'Or winner, have you ever heard of this film? No, and it's one that I think should be discussed. According to the key on Wikipedia, this was a unanimous win. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's uh, that sounds about right. I feel like... Um, Again, I'm only speaking for myself, but I was honestly blown away by this. Like, I was, like, I was almost, like, sick by the end of it. In a good way, I mean. And that last shot is chef's kiss. It's it's haunting. It's haunting, yet beautiful at the same time. So, so purposeful. I like how the plot kind of, like, snowballed at, like, the perfect pace. Because, like... For the first third, I was like, okay, this is kind of interesting. And then by the second act, I was like, okay, what's going on? Because, you know, the whole media involvement and all the craziness in the town. And then by the third act and how crazy it gets, I was just like, what is going on? And then it's just like, it has this like perfect crescendo to this like subtle crash of what is the end. And it has one, it has one of those endings that I like to refer to as a palm door ending. It's like, it just, the when it goes to black, you're wondering like, you want more frames just to see where it goes. Yeah, you you bring up the plot, James. What what exactly is like the uh, the the most basic summary for the listeners at home? Okay, so it's a man and his wife, and they're seen rolling into this town, and he's carrying a cross. And then you find out it's a promise he made to what was it? Uh, is it Santa Barbara. Yes. Okay. Yes, it was a promise he made to Santa Barbara. Of you know, you find out that um, it was a. Uh, his goat, his goat was spared. Donkey. Oh, donkey, right. And, uh, you know, he is to bring this cross to the church, but the priest won't let him in for suspicion that it's an, actually in bad faith and that he may be a demon. And then it becomes this whole thing where, you know, the media gets involved and they start asking him questions. And then it's it just kind of snowballs into this thing where he's kind of becoming this, like, martyr-like figure. And... Yeah, it's it's almost like what we see today, mm-hmm. where a situation that shouldn't get expanded just grows into this massive situation until the worst happens, and everybody's kind of like, what just happened here? And there's so many stories that follow that basic plot in different ways. Yeah, this almost reminds me of uh, On the Silver Globe, which I brought up, actually, I think in last week, or no, two weeks ago in the, the Lost Films episode, where, um, yeah, somebody kind of gets treated as a holy messiah. I mean, you even have Life of Brian where that basic premise happens, but in a more comedic way. And I feel like this this film, I've never heard of it before until, like, you know, just recently. I feel like it definitely stands up as one of the finer examples of this particular type of commentary. That covers every film that we've seen, but that that makes me feel a little bit empty. I feel like we probably need to recommend each other some more things to watch. What say you? But before we do that, we need to find out where we are located. Right, so we are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram under the K-Cut. And uh, we like to post little tidbits about film and weird memes that I find. And yeah, come join us. Yes, absolutely. Please do. So typically on our show, we like to give weekly recommendations, but because this is a cinematic smorgasbord episode, we are recommending each other and you listeners at the same time. So uh, this week, I believe, James, you have the collective pick for all three of us to watch. Yes. We will get to that in a minute. But who wants to find out their personal recommendations first? I'll recommend to James first. All right. Have you seen The Graduate? 
I have not. Oh. Good, you're watching The Graduate because you have to. It's like one of those films you have to say like Casablanca. So I, I'm going to take you through the canon. Awesome. That's such a James film as well. Like yeah. I, It feels like the type of stuff that James likes, but back in the late 60s. I think it's a perfect pick. I think there are a lot of elements James is going to like, but we'll see. I honestly think that's one of your best picks. So, since you gave first, Rachel, I can give you your recommendation if you'd like. The smorgasbord giveth, the smorgasbord taketh away. Go ahead. Okay, so I actually don't know if you've seen this film. I know you're aware of the filmmaker. I'm kind of hoping you didn't see this, otherwise I might need a backup plan. Um, I kind of want to give you something really, really, really challenging, but I feel like, um, luckily it's not too long. I think it's about an hour and a half. What I like about this particular film is that it really challenges the extremities of how you understand cinema. And because, you know, you know, you've studied it the same way that I have, I feel like it's only a rite of passage. Have you ever seen The Color of Pomegranates? No, but I want to because I, I actually almost did that for World of Movies a couple of weeks ago, so now I'm glad I didn't. Now you're going to watch it. It's by Sergei Perezhenov. It's considered one of the most rule-breaking films of all time. It's It's been considered, uh, in the same way Citizen Kane rewrote the language of film, uh, something similar, but way more out there and way more extreme with it. It's I, I don't want to say more than that. Go into it blindly. You've got to color pomegranates. Bring it. Okay. What am I going to watch? Ha-ha. <laughs> Alrighty. So... You know, I, I kind of like to keep things themed, and this one's it's, this one is very much kind of a bookend for Rachel's suggestion because this film is a ridiculous comedy, also released in two thousand one. And I picked this. I mentioned this before, but this is something I think retrospectively deserves the title of postmodern masterpiece. If people are willing to reevaluate Showgirls, this film definitely needs to be reevaluated. Oh, oh! Before you say it, there's one film that I've been actually wanting to watch because i've never seen it and is it freddy got fingered yes tom green's oh magnum God. opus freddy got oh fingered is your assignment <laughs> oh that's hilarious um that's, that's actually perfect because it's uh i'm finishing all of my crazy research for films fatale and lo and behold that's one that i've been like after all of this, I think I need to watch this just to get it out of the way because I've heard enough people say that this needs to be critically reevaluated. Thank you for bestowing that upon me, James. Yes. <laughs> it's one of those films, it paved the way for a lot of humor that's really popular now. Like, we wouldn't have Eric Andre if Tom Green didn't do what he did. Well, that's exciting. All right. I guess it's my turn to give the collective pick. Yes. Mm -hmm. So, this is yet another film from 2001 that seems just as ridiculous as the ones I've been picking from 2001. And it is a Hong Kong sports comedy film called Shaolin Soccer. I've heard of this. <laughs> I've never seen it, but I remember when it came out and there were tons of ads for it. Likewise. The synopsis is a former Shaolin monk reunites his five brothers years after their master's death to apply their superhuman martial arts skills to play football and bring Shaolin Kung Fu to the masses. Oh my God. This is, uh, I said this last week, but I, I feel like even more so this week, this is like one of the most eclectic episodes we have. We have The Graduate next to Freddy Got Fingered, like <laughs> Colored Pomegranates next to Shallon Soccer. You can't get more diverse than this. Yeah, it's it's a real smorgasbord, as they say. Yeah, except it's not like a series of cheeses. It's like we're eating um, a can of Red Bull with uh, a Greek salad and perhaps, I don't know, 
chocolate cake. Like it just seems all over the place, and I love it. Mm-hmm. It's like if you're oh. putting orange juice in your cereal. There you go. Even better. <laughs> even better to the point. So that was the cake cut. You know what you've got to watch before we reach June. We are now going into the L cut. 